evening, good evening, thank you for joining us. It's a beautiful Tuesday evening here, and if it's a Tuesday, you know what that means. It's time for Change Matters Solutions. We do this each and every Tuesday here on the Intentional Talk Radio Network. It is 7 o'clock here in Big D, Dallas, Tejas. It is 8 o'clock on the East Coast, and it's 5 o'clock on the West Coast. And if you're in the mountain time zone, hey, you do the math. We've got another great show lined up for you, so stick and stay and don't go away. And remember, tell a neighbor, tell a friend to join the Change Matters Movement. I'm your host, Kenny Hendricks. And I am your host, Colette Williams, right here on the Intentional Talk Radio Network. Thank you for joining us. It is a choppy, choppy, chilly evening. It is cold. My feet are cold. My hands are cold. Everything is cold. Everything. But that's okay. As Kenny Hendricks says, we are going to stick and stay and we are not going away. And you don't either. You are going to stay right here with us and have a ball. You're going to be educated this evening. You're going to be edified. You're going to get some information. It's going to be a great thing. And we want you to take this ride right here with us on Intentional Talk Radio Network. You get your listening pleasure by going to any of your podcast platforms and you get to hear us on itrnradio.com. This is the place you really want to be. So how's it going out there, Kenny Hendricks? Well, you know what you said? It's cold. I just had to take uh, my, I had two shirts on. I had to take a shirt off. It's kind of weird right now because sometimes it's cold. Like this morning before I came to drop off that package to you, I had my jacket on. I went by Costco, I had my jacket on, then I had to take it off. And I got home and I was cold and I was hot. And it's just that in between. I wish it would either be warm or cold. But other than that, it's all good. It is all good in the neighborhood. Oh, well, you know what? I think it's cold. I think it is cold. Well, you're cold, cold all the time. I'm so cold it could be 90 time. degrees out. You're cold. Yeah, so. and I, I, I still don't need the air. It's cold, cold. So it's December. It's not supposed to be. Well, eight. you know, we sleep with the uh, fan on no matter what. We got the fan on. <laughs> Every night, we got, even now, we've got the fan on. Yeah. For what? It's freezing It just outside. keeps the air circulating, you know? Stop breathing. The air will circulate. <laughs> nope. Jesus Christ. We love Christ. it that way. Love oh it that way. Oh, my God. Well, listen, I want to ask you a question. What happened with Chris Cuomo? Uh, I'll tell you what happened with Chris Cuomo. People on the left are very quick to eat their own. People on the right, they let their people get away with all sorts of things. But somebody on, on people on the right let their people get away with everything. Cuomo was either on the left or a moderate or something like that. But they just axed him really, really quickly. And it was because he was trying to help his brother out. He may have done something that was a little bit unethical because apparently he was using his contacts to find out what was going on with his brother. But it's his brother. Yeah. You know, he was trying and to do something for business. his brother. But, you know, you look at what's going on, on, on with, with right wing. I mean, they just get away with everything and their people just love them. And they, they look at you and go, so what? Matt, yeah. Get, Matt Gates is still under investigation for having a relationship with a 17-year-old. Uh, Jim Jordan is accused of knowing that in college that the young boys are being molested and he didn't do anything. And all this stuff, and these guys keep their jobs. It's just, it's just a and, shame. And the, and the maggot can talk about running for president again. And yeah. the maggot still isn't in jail. I don't understand what is going on. People like and guess what? Cuomo, Chris Cuomo. Mess around, and he might make it again. He, oh, he oh, has a very please. good chance of being reelected. Don't make me puke again. You know? Oh, that would just not be good. That would just not be good. And I guess they don't want to admit the dirt and the grime and the mess that he has created because he has certainly created. And they never will. And you know, he was trying to start this uh, social media company. Yeah. And it's already under investigation by the SEC and they haven't even launched yet. Oh my God. They missed their launch date and they're already under under investigation from the SEC. The guy's a a crook. He's a criminal. I mean, come on. Yeah, he is. And it takes Jimmy Kimmel. To really tell you what kind of crook he is. Because Jimmy Kimmel has his number. Oh my God, Jimmy Kimmel has his number. But Jimmy Kimmel will tell you what kind of crook he really is. Because he's nothing but a crook. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy Kimmel said it. He knows all about that stuff because he's a crook. 
because he is a fraud. And his his followers are the critical thing is that his followers are okay with it. I remember during the campaign when people saying he wasn't he was fudging the numbers on his properties. He would say there was it was worth more to sell it and worth less to pay taxes. And people were saying, well, that's what real estate people do. No, they don't. That that is completely. But they were okay with it. I tell you, he could kick puppies and 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 have fun with little girls and they would be okay with it it They'd does okay not matter it. it does not yeah. matter and that is the scary thing people need yeah. to be very very afraid of him getting back into yeah, office it's a horrible because if he's back in office guess what he's going to have a vendetta he's going to oh want revenge he sure will he sure will we think things are bad now yeah. they'll yeah. be you worse. think they're bad now they will be worse and that is that's a horrible thing that's a horrible thing because he created some of this. Mess. He he will hire Kyle Rittenhouse yeah. to work oh, in the White gosh. House. Yeah, he sure would. He sure would. Mm-hmm. But he is. But we 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 can't let that happen. And as a matter of fact, there are some people that we have coming on to the program in January. Some are politicians, community politicians, politicians, nevertheless. And uh, we'll see what they say. We'll see what they say. But we've got a lot to do, a lot to talk about. 22 has got to be a better year than 21. And it anything is better than what we did in 20. You know, what I was listening to, you know, Melissa Harris-Perry? Mm-hmm. You know, she used to be on MSNBC and now she's on NPR. And I was listening to her and they were talking, she was talking to, I forget who the gentleman's name was. And they were talking about what happened last year and the whole bit. What I don't get is the people on the left will not just say it outright whose fault it is that we are where we are. Mm -hmm. We know it was his fault because he said it was going to disappear magically. We've only got five cases. It's going to be down to zero. Don't worry about it. When the weather warms up, it's going to go away. He said it was a hoax. We are in the position we are in because we had him at 1600 Pennsylvania for four years. That is why. But people on the left will not say it. They kind of intimated well, during his term, he did. No, just freaking say it. Because guess what? On the right, they would say it. Oh, sure. They're they saying it they now. It's not even the were. truth. Yeah. They don't yeah. care. They, they do they not don't care. care. They don't. They will lie straight to your face through their yeah. teeth and, and just then keep say, on. So what? Yep. And keep on moving. Yep. But people right. on the left are weak because they're just saying, oh, well, you know, we like, like Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. I love Michelle. But you know what? You can't take a knife to a gunfight. And that's the problem yeah. we're having. And it's going to play out if we're not careful. It could play out that way in 22 and in 24. Oh, my God. I can't even, I don't even want to think about it. We've got to make sure that that does not happen. He should be in jail anyway. Yes, he should. He I should don't, be jailed. I don't even he read the, art, when the articles talk about they're looking at this. I don't even read it. I don't want to read it. If you're not going to yeah. do anything about it, I don't. I'm not. I don't want to be yeah, bothered. Don't even talk about it yeah. anymore. Don't so even what's talk the point? about it anymore. Yeah, because you're not going to do anything about it. But you know what? Uh, we've got a good friend who is our guest this evening, and he's going to talk to us about all things in the motherland that is Africa, and black folks especially should think about doing on their own. And this is a great way. This is a great way. I've been looking at things that are taking place in Africa. I looked at the list of billionaires in, in Africa, in Nigeria especially, and the billionaires, the Nigerian women that are billionaires, there are no billionaires like these women in this country. So we're going to get ready. We're going to start this conversation because Paul has a lot to talk about. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Paul, and then we're going to jump right into having a discussion with him. He just got back from Africa. Paul Turner is the Associate Director for Business Development at Nonprofit Finance Fund, a community development financial institution that provides capital for mission-led and community centers organization. Paul is also the founder and chief, I'm sorry, founder and chair of the Marsha D. Turner Foundation, an organization engaged in partnerships with faith-based institutions in the Democratic Republic of the Congo to improve livelihoods through social enterprise development. So Paul has done a lot of work. 
He is also an adjunct professor at Azusa Pacific in the university's Masters of Transformational Urban Leadership Program. Paul challenges his students to examine a community's assets and not just their needs. Paul previously served as the Community Relations Director for Citigroup, responsible for the CRA, which is the Community Reinvestment Act, activities in Southern California. While at Citi, he directed the bank's local strategy to increase the BIPOC ownership and implemented programs to support housing organizations with their foreclosure prevention and neighborhood stabilization strategies. Prior to Citi, he was the resident fellow at the Greenlining Institute, conducting research and programs to advance civil rights, equal opportunity, and diversity. He also managed, managed the Merrill Lynch Greenlining Partnership to invest $500 million in California's low-to-moderate-income communities and the diverse small businesses. And one of the things that I'm going to ask Paul about, even though he has just come back from Africa, from a very long stint in Africa, $500 million in California's low-to-moderate-income communities the homeless issue is out of control. There's absolutely nothing that can be done about it. Nothing. How do you have gas at 659 on the corner of Santa Monica and Burton Way? And a few yards away, you've got a homeless encampment, that entire stretch of island on Burton Way. California has had billions of dollars but why is the homeless issue so out of control? Paul, is there any way you can answer that? And thank you for being with us. <laughs> well, she starts off with a doozy, huh? Just get get right out there, get you going. Uh, yeah. No, thank thank you all for having me. Yeah, she she lured me by saying, "Oh, we're going to talk about Africa," and then she brings up homelessness. Well, no, that's great. That's great. Well, actually, I, I started my career. Uh, uh, as the first community development uh, coordinator for a homeless rescue mission yeah, on Skid Row. And what I did there was something that no other rescue mission in the country had done, and that is look at the causes of homelessness and how can we provide economic empowerment to this population in a way that not only gives them dignity, but you know, uh, after they get got over addictions and got rehabilitated, how are they going to get reintegrated back into the workforce and, and society? And that's kind of the things that we looked at. And that's when I got really involved in this solution around social enterprise development. And what I did there at the mission was created a company that took uh, men who were in the residential recovery program and actually put them to work so that they could earn money that went into a savings account so that when they left the mission, they had a nest egg to go out and find an apartment and get a job. And that business that we created was a maintenance company that had contracts with major companies um, adjacent to Skid Row, like the Los Angeles Times, which owns half of Skid Row, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we did a lot of the building maintenance. We got contracts with the Postal Service to do landscaping. We had all these things, and it was very successful. And then we went to the next step and said, okay, we had guys who were actually businessmen before they got into their situation that led them to the mission. So how can we help them get back in business? And we got them involved in entrepreneurship training and provided funding so that they could have seed money so to restart their businesses and re-engage their contacts. And that was also very successful. So that, uh, that experience working with the homeless population uh, years ago kind of uh, planted the seeds in terms of, you know, how do you give people dignity and, and, and that's through work. How do you build on their knowledge? And that's their, you know, being entrepreneurs and, and um, you know, getting them to be able to earn a living again. I, I think that's part of the strategies that we have to look at. Another one is that, you know, when you look at government safety net programs, it's anything within government is formalized. Well, this is all informal, right? You know, these are people that don't have an address. You think of our safety net is geared to the formal, not the informal. We don't have meet you on the street type of assistance. We don't have, um, you know, uh, drop-in center type uh, assistance. You have to, you know, 
have an address. You got to do this form. You got to do that form. Right, it's all right. very, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it just, the more we do, the more it's done the same way. And of course it misses a lot of people. And so we just got to figure out and the politicians and it has to really get down to where public policy has to work in hand with philanthropy and with community uh, folks who are on the ground to say, uh, let's come up with some real solutions and it's going to have to be an integrated process. Well, politicians working with philanthropy, I don't think that'll happen. And the reason I say that. Well, no, I, I, what I mean is philanthropy is sort of where the experiment happens and then they demonstrate what policy should be. That is the role of philanthropy. Like, for example, my favorite story is um, in the 1930s, there used to be a lot of traffic accidents. More people were dying than, you know, hundreds, tens of thousands a year. And uh, someone who, uh, who was a philanthropist got the idea of, well, why don't I just be paint a white line down the middle of the road so that the cars know what side of the road they should stay on. <laughs> and that turned out to reduce accidents uh, on that street that had accidents before. And now that was adopted by every major transportation department in the, in the country as something you should do as, yeah. a, mm-hmm. as policy. So that's my example of what philanthropy is. It demonstrates what policy should be. Okay. And and so that I give that example about painting a line down the middle of the road. You know, what does that look like in terms of get in terms that. of fighting uh, you know, uh traffic accidents? Well, maybe there's something what is the white line down the road for preventing homelessness or addressing right. the homeless issue? We gotta find well, more of it. We've had several people on who have addressed the issue of homelessness. And only one person has ever said that it's not about the data. It's not about collecting the paper. It's not about that, even though every six months I get a request on my LAUSD email that asks for all of us to join their volunteer mission to go out and count homelessness. Yeah. How You're still counting and doing nothing about it? Really? Just drive down the street. That ought to tell you something. I'm just counting more and more. But, yeah, we have to figure out a way in which um... – like I say, we have a safety net that, that is on the street level. Our, have, I was watching a um, YouTube video recently about the homelessness in L.A., Oakland, San Francisco, some of the worst places in the, in the nation. Add some, some stuff back east, but those seem to be the worst places. And I know one of the problems is that a lot of the people, they, they built these, these tiny homes or these shelters, but a lot of people don't want to go to the shelters because they don't want to abide by the rules. So how do you deal with people like that? I know they've got, there's some mental issues. There are some veterans out there. There's a whole plethora of yeah. issues. How, how, how do you deal with all those, especially when people don't want to? I mean, some people, they want to be able to drink. They want to be able to smoke. They want to be able to do all these things. And they say, if I've got to follow the rules, I don't want to go. So how do you deal with that piece? Yeah, well, you've hit on something I think is very important, that when we talk about the people who are homeless, it's a, a number of reasons, and it's a big population, a very diverse population of people who are homeless for a variety of reasons. Some are drug addicted, some are mentally ill, some just don't have a home, and some are, you know, uh, maybe a home at one time, or some are are being abused and having their benefits taken, and yet they're put out. Um, you know, we have to find um, permanent supportive housing for people, and that's why my organization, Nonprofit Finance Fund, we have a special loan fund now where we're helping to support uh, developers of um, of uh, permanent supportable uh, supportive housing, so that those housing uh, the units come with the social services and the counseling that's needed to keep those people in, in their home, in their units um, with these types of services. And I think we have to look at those type of wraparound services to no matter what your situation is, everyone should be housed. Everyone should have a roof over their head. And so what can, what is it that you need that can be offered to keep you in that home, regardless of what your your ailments or your background or what brought you there is. So if it's uh, mental health, okay, what are your mental health challenges? We have some services that can help you maintain your 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 health, your mental health. If it's um, physical abilities, then we've got 
you know, ADA uh, approved facilities for you. If you need job training, if you need placement, that's all those services are all included with the housing. So we have to not stop looking at just as housing, but as human service. Housing is a human service. Uh, and if we look at human services, those wraparound services that are needed to keep people in the housing so they don't want to go out into the street because they are in a place that, like, again, going back to giving people dignity, whether it's a, a, a job, a way to earn money or to keep a roof over their head or to get the services that they need to, to, um, to protect themselves and, uh, and not be a burden to their families or society, I think is be, would be a very important thing. But we need more. Um, permanent supportive housing in the United States. And uh, we need, again, going back to the policy <laughs> uh, to kind of help make that happen too. And a lot of that too is in the area of banking. We're looking at doing things that are very different in terms of uh, uh, financing um, to help organizations who want to develop this type of housing do that. And so um, we see a lot of that happening, but that more and more of it needs to happen. It absolutely does. And we're not going to get off on a tangent because I could go way the other way, but I'm not going to do that. But what I have seen, it seems like each time I go back to California, it gets more despicable. It gets mm -hmm. worse and worse every single time. And I believe wholeheartedly there's nothing that you or anybody else can do that would make me think that this is not the design. Because L.A. specifically, L.A. has received billions of dollars mm -hmm. to fix the issue. And every time they get the money, it keeps people in jobs. It doesn't fix the issue. So mm -hmm. I know that the design is that mm -hmm. these people are kept in good jobs, good paying jobs. If you fix this, that means you're not going to have a job. So do your best to just kind of work at it. You're not really supposed <laughs> to fix it. You're supposed to make sure that you keep a job. So I've seen that. I've seen it live and in living color. And I'm not going to name names, but I have seen it live and in living color. So even a, a good friend of mine, you know him. I'm not going to mention his name, although he's no longer in office. He had to leave because his son did some stupid stuff. I won't mention any names. <laughs> However, I've talked to his people. We've talked to city people. We've had city people on this show. Nothing is being done, which brings mm -hmm. me to another point. We were talking about how business is done in Africa. You just got back from Africa. And I believe, and I have seen that doing business in Africa is a reach. I want to do business in Africa. I think we should be doing business in Africa. I love what we can do in Africa and what the possibilities are. And how is it we're missing that? We're missing cleaning up homelessness and we're missing what we should be doing in Africa. Yeah. Come on, people. Well, I, I love the connection. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but there is, and it gets to, you know, information. You know, it's what people don't know, um, information that, you know, maybe we weren't meant to know. But the whole world is doing business on the continent of Africa. I was just there spending six years. I moved from the United States and, and moved to the Democratic Republic of the Congo back in 2015. It just came back in October. And, um, and it was very interesting to um, see, for example, you take a country like Turkey and Erdogan, one of um, former president who we won't name, favorite um, strongman presidents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, here's the president of Turkey who very much is trying to reimagine and reinvent the old Ottoman Empire because he wants to be the, the, the sultan. He, he re looks at himself as the next sultan. And how is he going to expand this new Ottoman Empire? Well, they've chosen to do it through Africa. There isn't a single uh, 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 capital a country capital in Africa where Turkish airlines doesn't fly. So wow. Turkish airlines flies to every capital city in Africa. And that is because Turkey, president Erdogan wants to be the next Sultan. And he sees the way to do that is through trade and relations with uh, countries on that continent. 
And I, when I go from LA to Kinshasa or to Kigali or anywhere, Turkish airlines, uh, it's always between Turkish and Ethiopian. <laughs> Um, and Ethiopian Airlines is probably the next one that competes kind of at the same quality and, and price uh, as, as Turkish. But, um, but my point is that other countries see Africa, and now you see um, just a report, too, that Putin is now getting involved in Central African Republic and, and Eastern Congo. You already had Qatar signing deals with countries in West Africa, because why? Those Middle Eastern countries know they're getting a larger population, but they have no land to grow food. Where's the arable land to grow food? Why is China now so huge in every major country, in every country uh, on on the continents? Because they need to feed their people. They need to provide, they need to earn money for their economy. And so you see China for, you know, just, offering $10 billion worth of new roads for carte blanche access to raw materials and all of their products. Uh, you can't buy a generator or a flashlight or, or anything that's not made in China when, when you're in the Congo. So they have access to markets. Uh, they have access to raw materials. And, but the things that's missing there, and there's the opportunities, is that there's such a rush for the, the land and the raw materials that there's not enough investment in manufacturing. And that is why there's not enough jobs being produced on the continents because there's no process or manufacturing base um, to help provide that job creation that's needed for the young people uh, that are uh, up and coming and are very frustrated uh, by this. You know, you have a place like the Democratic Republic of the Congo is about 90 million people. Over 65% are under the age of 15. Wow. wow. So this is a huge market, a, uh, you know, a burgeoning market. And they have access to the Internet. They have cell phones. They, they see what's happening in the rest of the world. They yearn for the same uh, access and quality of life that they see other people having around the world. And they're quite tech savvy. Um, they are in many ways first adapters to technology. Uh, everyone sends money by phone. Um, this is the way, yeah, absolutely. Uh, fintech, what we call financial technology here is already ingrained in, in Africa. People are very comfortable, um, banking and sending money using their mobile phones. And so the idea of more mobile phone technology and commerce, um, is, is ready to really take, is already taken off, uh, on the continent. There's more, that can be done around that. And young people are at the forefront, the young, um, young adults who understand the technology and, and are now uh, involved in marketing products and services are, are using these tools and are being quite entrepreneurial uh, about it because they're involved in media, they're involved yeah. in the arts and entertainment and, and, and selling other products. And so it, it really is exciting to see that happening. And, you know, one of the things I looked at a lot when I lived there was uh, CNBC Africa. I bet a lot of people in the United States don't know that CNBC actually has an Africa channel. <laughs> really? And no, where I, you get the, I did not you know, know that. You get, you get closing bail West Africa. You get closing bail South Africa. You get closing bail East Africa. They um, actually uh, will um, show a lot of the um, uh, different conferences around on the economy and in different uh, trade groups uh, across the continent. It's a great, great way to uh, get information uh, regarding business um, about what's happening on the continent as well. Wow. Well, that is certainly something to really think about because there are people who still consider Africa a place where it's just the jungle. A backwards country, yeah. Backwards country. Well, continent. Continent of 54 um, c- continent, countries. Continent, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> continent. continent. I'm, I'm, my I'm bad. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Continent. Continent. People right. are, are thinking. Well, it's almost Africa. a billion people. So, you know. Right, you, right. But, but. An emerging market. Yeah, they. Or not even emerging. It's, it's arrived. It's, it's I mean. arrived. There are people who still think that Africa is the jungle. And I've had people say, I don't want to do anything there. That's, that's the jungle. People aren't even civilized. There's no civilization there. Why would you want to do that? And I can't believe that people still feel that way. So, Paul, you just got back here in October, right? That's right. Okay. So how many vaccines have you had? 
I have both vaccines. Yes. I mean, I have two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. Okay. So you got But now Pfizer. here's the down, and that's a good question because, you know, when I was in, in Congo, uh, I moved to, I started in the Equator region. Uh, where I lived in the city of Bendaka, which is right on the equator. In fact, when I looked at my iPhone compass on my front porch, it said zero degrees latitude, which mm. meant the equator ran across my front porch. Wow. Wow. Uh, then in 2018, I went to Eastern Africa because we had an Ebola outbreak. Yeah. And so while we were addressing the Ebola uh, and trying to to control the spread with all of the different NGOs, United Nations, World Health Organization, Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, all of these groups coming together and the population uh, all engaged in community uh, engagement and risk communication. You know, we did what it took to stop the spread of a deadly disease. Everyone yes. was washing hands. Everyone yes. was yes. doing what they do yep. so that when COVID happened, lo and behold, it spread everywhere except yes. in Africa because in, we were already engaged in the protocols to prevent Ebola. And yes. so preventing COVID was the only thing we had to do was just mask up, but we were doing everything else. And that's why it never really caught on uh, that first wave uh, when uh, the COVID spread mainly in North America, Europe, and other places. It was during that second wave uh, after, um, you know, in the uh, late 2020, mm -hmm. I think that we start to see increasing cases uh, in, and deaths uh, in, in the continent, on the continent. Uh, but then, but people had no problems with mask mandates, no problem with social distancing. A lot of things were closed. Um, and now that we've had, you know, very few, because only 7% of the population has received vaccine. And the really? first first country to fully vaccinate their people was Rwanda. Uh, and that's because Rwanda does not fool around. You will not you cannot walk through Kigali and not see uh, have one person with a mask on. Really? Uh, and when you fly in and out of Kigali, you have to take a test before and you take a test when you land uh, before you leave the airport. So there wow. are some countries that are really taking it seriously. You know, people would scream and holler if they had to take a test, you know, before they got on. Oh, here, yeah, yeah. When, yeah, you, people when you fly to Kigali, you, you don't have that, you don't have the option. And um, so that's why it hasn't reached the levels uh, of COVID um, in Africa like as it has in, uh, except for maybe, you know, South Africa because of the different, the, the various flights and connections and that out. they have mm -hmm. to Europe and North America. Right. But to the rest of the continent, particularly in Central Africa, where there is not that that sort of um, ongoing travel, uh, it hasn't taken a bigger bigger hold as it has. In Interesting. I, I want to circle back to this side of the pond for a second. Uh, she read your resume, a very impressive resume. She said you do some. You're a professor over at Azusa Pacific, and you're teaching transformational urban leadership. Is that did I say that right? That's the name of the the program, the master's program that I taught in. And this was a, a cohort of students, masters working on their graduate students, who go and actually live and work in slum communities around the world. So we have a, co a group uh, of students living in slum communities in Rio, de in the favelas of Rio, in the um, Kibara um, slums of Nairobi, uh, in Chennai, in India, in Manila. And all of us would come on a Zoom call a class uh, every week and talk about what it's like to be, to do um, asset-based community development in the most impoverished communities around the world in each of these mega cities that had these huge swaths of, uh, of impoverished people. And so these students were engaged in, in doing uh, seed projects with uh, local institutions, mostly church-based uh, institutions to bring about uh, change in those communities to help uh, uh, create small projects that can grow and to help uh, provide a, a way for people to sustain themselves and to improve their communities. And that was a very um, exciting thing to be a part of. So, Paul, you had to leave 
L.A. to go do that? You can do that right in L.A. <laughs> I did do it in L.A. And so, uh, well, how that happened was, so um, the two denominations in the United States, the, the United Church of Christ and the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, which is quite big in Texas, I, they have a, a school you probably heard of there in uh, uh, Fort Worth called TCU. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, a TCU is affiliated with the Disciples of Christ. And so both of these denominations do their international work, mission work together. And uh, they call it the Common Global Ministries of the United Church of Christ and Disciples of Christ. Uh, and so what typically happens, the way mission is done today is not what it used to be back in the 20th century. The way mission is done today is churches overseas make a request to their church partners in the United States for certain people with certain skills to help them with their own strategic Mm -hmm. projects that they come up with. So there was a request by the disciples of Christ community in the Congo for someone to do entrepreneurship and leadership development uh, and and economic development uh, in um, the Congo basin there in uh, Equator. And so I responded to that request and went as a mission coworker from the United States to work in community with that that church community there in Congo. So I went as as an ambassador, not ambassador, but as a as a journalist, someone looking also to learn as much as I could contribute um, in that community and to live in that community and be part of that community, which is really something that I had um, had not really fully appreciated the importance of presence. And this is what we really have to talk about, too, in terms of African-Americans and, and uh, reconciling and, and integrating and working with Africans. It's, it, our presence is so important because we have not been present. Um, so for them to see me and to see me you know, speaking their language and learning from them, singing in the choir in Lingala in front of the church and seeing me making the effort gave them pride, gave them dignity, gave them, wow, look at this American living with us. He's trying to speak our language. He's, he's trying to be part of us. This is, this is great. And you could see the gleam in their eye when they see me up there speaking their language or at least trying to and making the effort that that was something they took uh, tremendous pride in. And, um, you know, and part of what that means to me here and some of the things that I was doing before I went there is, I think it's very important for us to kind of get to know the African immigrant community in the United States to a large extent. And that's why I'm working now with, since I've been back with a group of Congolese uh, businessmen uh, here in California to say, to convince the Congolese government that they should have a, a consulate office in California. I mean, they have an embassy, but most major countries that really want to do business need to have at least a consulate in the fifth largest economy in the world, which is the state of California. And we have seven African consulates already. And so a country as big and significant as the Democratic Democratic Republic of the Congo should have one. But their response to us was, well, you have to convince us that we should make that investment. And so we're creating a chamber-type organization to promote trade and investment, but also to practice what it is we, we uh, want this entity to do in terms of creating relationships, uh, creating opportunities uh, for research, for business, for cultural exchange, for ideal ex- idea exchange. And most importantly, as we come out of COP26 and talking about climate change, you know, the Congo Basin is one of the last remaining um, preserved places left. You see what's happening in the Amazon where they're burning it down, they're chopping it down. You see what's happening in Indonesia, where they're planting palm trees for palm oil production. And the only last intact place we have in order to eat all this carbon is the Congo Basin. And there, the people are not you, you know, just chopping down trees. They're maintaining that forest. And that benefits the whole world. And I think they should be compensated for it. And right. so that's some of the things we're, we're talking about. How do we uh, engage also in this whole issue and making sure there's resources uh, for um, sustainability and for us to, to fight climate change? 
You know, you mentioned uh, uh, working with them and we should work with them and, and vice versa. And, and, and it brings me to um, my, my thought is one of the things we have to get past is we are constantly barraged with they don't like us. The people on the continent don't like us don't and like, we don't yeah. like them. And, and the narrative is that there is this schism or chasm, whichever word you want to use, between the people from the continent and the people here, black Americans here. So I guess the, 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 the issue is getting past that narrative. So how do we get past that narrative? How do we start to build those relationships? Yeah, I, it wasn't my experience at all. Um, you know, they are so um, excited to meet America. They still hold the United States, I don't know why, but in very high esteem. <laughs> most, people, most people around the world do to some degree. I mean, but I mean, it's <laughs> really, uh, you know, you see people wearing, you know, American flag uh shirts and i mean anything what? america they yeah. wear they drink bottled water called america water uh anything with usa or anything they they love and so um really? they just don't yeah know. our our brand is still one of the biggest <laughs> on the <laughs> continent um and then they laugh at all the stuff we criticize uh yeah. stuff about yeah. but um but yeah again i was telling um uh, Colette earlier, you know, we just don't know and they don't know. Um, and we have to bridge this huge information gap. And I think it's important to take trips. Um, you know, I've said before, and I said one of the biggest regrets I had in, in school was when I was thinking about uh, foreign languages to study. We're taught that, you know, you study French so you want, you can go to France. Right. Forgetting that half the continent speaks French. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And, and, and if someone had just reminded me of that yeah. when I was in school, I would have said, you know, you're right. I need to go take some French lessons. French. Instead, I ended up taking French lessons at 49 or 45, right. whatever it was, and going yeah. 12. It was nice because I got to go to the Alliance Francaise in, in Paris and, and take some classes before I went to the Congo. And because... Even in Congo, the French is only the official government language, you know, the colonial mm -hmm. language. But there are five official languages. So, and this is true in 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 most of the other African countries because you got the local African languages, uh, and in the Congo, and then there's still 200 others. But the top five were French, Lingala, um, Kikongo, uh, Shiluba, Swahili, and Lingala. Um, so. Um, even still, it's not, you know, you find people speak three or four or all of those languages in, in country. So, um, but, you know, I studied French so much. And then when I actually went to Ecuador, I found out, well, not many people speak French. They all spoke Lingala. Yeah. And, and we're taught that English is the only language that you really need, if not Spanish. Oh, English no. And Spanish. Yeah. yeah. And, and really, well, depending on who you speak, you start speaking Spanish, people are starting to have a real issue with that, you know, with yeah. the whole divide. But yeah. and yeah. I'm Well, not... that's the side of the hemisphere that we're on, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but yeah. you're an American now. Speak American. Right. <laughs> That's exactly what they think. Mm -hmm. You're Speaking. in America now. This is this is America. Speak the language here, English. So are are you are you back permanently here in the states, or do you have uh, plans to go back to the continent soon, or what? No, I'm back. So my foundation, the Marcia D. Turner Foundation, is still quite active uh, on the continent. What we do is we've uh, coming out of the Ebola uh, outbreak. There was now that Ebola has ended, there was another social problem of stigma and discrimination against people who survived Ebola. Now, mm -hmm. here's the big thing, too, when we talk about vaccines. Ebola was, is one of the scariest diseases in the world because it was fatal for anybody who got it mm -hmm. uh, before 2014. If you got Ebola, you were as good as dead. Anybody who touched you was, would be dead within days. Uh, during the West African Ebola outbreak, experimental vaccines were used for the first time. And people actually survived. 11,000 people died, but thousands of people became survivors for the first time of Ebola. In Eastern Congo in 2018, we had 2,000 survivors of Ebola, meaning at one time they had test positive, they got treatment, they took the vaccines, and they survived. And they no longer have traces. They, they get regular tests, and the, the virus is not, not um, in them. But... People obviously, uh, you know, take on the stigma 
uh, and discriminate against them. I mean, these were people who were once doctors, who were once nurses, who were once teachers, uh, business people, and now they can't get a job. They can't get employment. So what we did was connect with the, um, the Protestant uh, Association in Eastern Congo uh, and through a project that I had started in Ecuador around helping people with vision impairment to see by getting low-cost, affordable eyeglasses, we're able now to help those people uh, earn income by providing uh, eye screenings and selling eyeglasses. And so, so the, through the sale of eyeglasses, they're able to support themselves and their families. So the people that contracted Ebola and survived Ebola and they're doing well, they're not able to go back. There's a stigma attached. They're not able to get a job, right. They're not able to go really? back. They're still, even by their own family members, they're still shunned. Really? Um, yeah. This is a, is there, a, a, is there a mark? Problem. Is there a mark or is there something that's That's there? not a mark. You know, <laughs> rumor mill, when you have the, at the village level, people talk and they know who, who had, who had contracted it and who's now not, uh, so they become known in the community and then that marks them for the treatment that they receive, unfortunately. But through this process, we're hoping that this, we can address the stigma as well as provide them with a, a way to, to earn a living. Because maybe the way to get that is to say, okay, here's a person that's going to help me with my vision impairment. And maybe I can overcome whatever yeah. fears I have. <clears throat> of this person who's going to help me. And then, and then we're, this is kind of an, the experiment to see how we can both address the stigma and provide the income generation uh, that people need as well. So when Ebola stopped by here, that was in 20, what? 18. Well, that was during the, that was during the West African outbreak in 2014. Okay. That was in 2014. Oh, yeah. I guess it was all, well, about eight that- years, eight years ago. We had one person, uh, a couple of people came. One person came through Newark. One was in Texas. Yeah, yeah. as a matter of fact, and, uh, down the street from Colette's daughter. Yeah, when she was living yeah. here. And yeah. they had come from because they were helping. Mm-hmm. No, uh, well, this girl was a nurse. She went to yeah. Chicago. Right, she, she was a nurse. to mm-hmm. Chicago. Mm-hmm. And she left Chicago. She went to Chicago to do something for her wedding. And she flew mm-hmm. back. And she was sick as she flew back. And when she got mm-hmm. off the plane, she went home. And she went home to her apartment over in the SMU area, Southern Methodist mm-hmm. University area. And that's when it was found out that she had Ebola and they mm-hmm. shut down the whole area. They brought yeah. in the hazmat team. Right. And my daughter called me in a panic saying, we're leaving the country. The girl next door has Ebola. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was yeah. crazy. Yeah. And they yeah. took her from SMU over to, uh, Presbyterian mm-hmm. and they shut down parts of Presbyterian, but she stayed there. And I believe she's, she's kicking and. Yeah. She survived that. She survived. Yeah, she I survived. recall that. Yeah. Yeah. She mm-hmm. survived because she was probably given those early uh, vaccines that they were then administering also right. in, in West well, at, Africa at the time. Yeah. But, at that point, it was, there were things that were out of control, but nothing like we're seeing right. in 20. 21. Well, it wasn't politicized, right? Yeah, it no. wasn't politicized. <laughs> you know, it well, was not politicized, yeah. and we had a much better president. When you put a clown in charge, you got to expect a circus, you know. Yeah. Mm. And and, and so that that's how you handle it. You take it seriously. Yeah. You handle it. And I keep saying this, Paul. I've been saying this <clears throat> since last year. If we would have shut everything down January through March, when we found out this was really bad, or March through June, because March is when it really got bad. Because I was out of town. Mm-hmm. I was in Atlanta going to get my sister-in-law and we were planning staying there for like three weeks. And I told my wife and everybody, no, we scoop her up and get back because they were talking about shutting down the borders. And I said, I am not getting stuck in Mississippi. Okay. So (laughs) we came right back. So had they shut down, let's say March through June, three months, shut everything down. The thing about it is what you have to understand is shutting down doesn't mean everybody, both my sons work from home. Before I retired, I was working from home. My wife works from home part-time. She was working from home full-time at one point. So many different people can work from home. 
So many businesses can survive. And then you have the PPP program, and you don't let the Lakers get money. You don't let Tom Brady get money. You, <laughs> you, know, you, you, you monitor it, and you give it to the people that actually need it. We could have been beyond this thing, but we're not. Mm-hmm. And not to go down the whole political rabbit hole, we are in this. We're going into year three. At this point, yeah. we are going into year three. And this is what I was saying earlier. Somebody, people need on the left just need to just jump up and say, call it what it is. This is why we are here because we had an yeah. idiot in charge and we are paying the price for it right now. Mm-hmm. People don't want to put on a mask on airplanes. I was watching a video of a lady. She had the mask under her chin. I have my mask on under her chin. I got my mask on. No, ma'am, you have to have it over your nose and your mouth. They finally had to throw her off the plane. People fighting. We are in such over a, a piece of paper. It's, it's a freaking mask. Yeah. Come on, get over it. Yeah. Let's get past this. But at this rate, we're never going to get past this. Right. We're it's never going to get past this. And Paul, we have so many more questions that we'd like for you to answer. But I'm going to go to a couple of people on the board. I'm going to go to Theta Redwine and find out if she has anything that she would like to ask you about or any comments. Uh, she always has good stuff to talk about. So Theta. Is there anything you'd like to talk to Paul about with regards to Africa or anything else? Absolutely. I just wanted to ask, what would he say are the two biggest issues that he sees need to be addressed right now? The most critical. We've talked about several different things, but as far as what we could actually um, address, what kind of support we here in the U.S. can provide for them, what would you say are the top two topics? Well, if you ask people on the continent, they would say to an American, the best the mo- best thing you can do for us is not send us any more used clothes or shoes or anything like that, but actually advocate with your elected officials, your congressmen, your congresswomen, um, and your your federal government to actually have good policies, foreign policy in place that will can help us actually uh, be true to your word in terms of promoting democracy and uh, making sure that they can uh, fully participate in that democracy Um, because um, it's government policy in many cases around the world. People love Americans, but they really don't like our government. They hate our government and and what our government supports and what our government does uh, in other countries. So the first thing they would say that you should do is advocate on their behalf to your elected officials. Well, I did. And my, the, the second is I recently watched the um, I'm going to say it was an investigation slash documentary on the we charity and how which I suspect is probably commonplace, but basically how they had raised money and they bragged about having built, I don't know let's say 800 schools when in fact it was like 80 schools and they had several people who had their names on the buildings. I would think that's uh, a commonplace and it appeared. And so I'm Mm -hmm. asking your personal opinion. Mm -hmm. It appeared as though the individuals in those villages were participatory as a, As in, I can participate and have something, or I can go ahead and blow the whistle on what's going and we'll have nothing. Right. So I thought it was unfortunate that they were placed in that vein, because you could see that they themselves didn't have anything. Right. They weren't affluent. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that that concerns me. Yeah, you bring up up another important point, and and that's the corruption. Uh, And that corruption is born out of poverty and the lack of opportunity. Uh, that lack of opportunity and poverty also not only uh, manifests itself in terms of corruption, but also violence. Uh, you see this happening in Eastern Congo, where you have 70, at least estimated 70 militia groups operating in the eastern part of Congo, all just trying to, uh, because the government can't project its power, can't um, project its, go- uh, its army, who's already itself corrupted in many ways. Um, but the issue is over the land and, and the minerals mm-hmm. on that land. You know, if the Congo, if you count up the value of the minerals, it's not just like Nigeria just has oil. 90% of Nigeria's wealth is tied to oil. 
Well, in the Congo, they don't have oil, but they have gold, they have diamonds, they have coltan, they have magnesium, they have uranium, they have cobalt, they have coltan. And what is coltan used for? Coltan is a mineral that you must have in order to charge your cell phones and to charge your electric car battery and to make your phone and the tungsten that's mined in Congo, 70% of the world's known reserves of, of tungsten are in Congo. That's what makes your phone vibrate. So, you, so nobody needs to hear it. So there's this fight over these resources. And it's not just the people and the militia groups within those countries. It's also the surrounding countries, nine countries that border Congo. Uh, Museveni in Uganda, Kagame in Rwanda. You go down the list, they all have some sort of play uh, involved in causing consternation in this region of Congo so that they can have access to those resources. And then you, you include China coming in, now Russia coming in, the United States always there protecting, always its, in, yeah. uh, protecting right. its interests, the British, always the Germans. Interest. I mean, yeah. everyone, it's the biggest international criminal conspiracy going. Uh, and, you know, we forget that back in 1960, the um, Secretary General of the United Nations lost his life for trying to broker peace in the Congo. Uh, and we know now from investigation that's just come out in the last two years that the plane he was flying in in southern in northern Rhodesia to go to um, what is now Lubumbashi was shot down by probably British Secret Service. So there is a long history of treachery. And, uh, you know, we've got January coming up in which we celebrate Martin Luther King Day. But at the same time and sometimes on the same day in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, it's uh, it's Patrice Lumumba Day. And we can't forget how Patrice Lumumba, the first democratically elected prime minister of Congo at that time, was um, was captured, tortured and assassinated with the help of the CIA and uh, with the um, command under a uh, Belgian officer who who gave the uh, order to shoot him. So um, there is a, a very long truncated bad history between uh u.s government actions in the congo and what's happening today and so um we have to be informed about that there's a lot of books on it i i recommend um um congo the history the epic history of a people by von raybrook which is uh he's a playwright by profession so reading his book is like uh, reading a, it's, it's very, uh, you, you, you forget you read a whole chapter in a few minutes because it's, his writing is very good. But I recommend that book for anybody who's interested in um, learning more about the history of Congo. Wow. And, and all of the, the different things that have happened within the last two years and how the, the genocide in Rwanda back in 94 kind of unleashed a lot of things that happened in that part of the world. I do have wow. one real, real quick question and that is, um, I don't hear much about it, but I was just wondering, uh, what is your understanding of where we stand with uh, celebrities and just Caucasians in general adopting children from mm. Africa? Yeah, there's a lot of crackdown on that now, uh, particularly after what happened in Malawi. Um, and there's a lot of child protections that are put in place, I think, now. Um um, I don't get too much into adoptions because that one of the things I did learn when I was briefly president of Save Africa's Children uh, back in 2010, I kind of got was working on how do we protect orphan and vulnerable children impacted by HIV AIDS in Eastern and Southern Africa. And while I was talking about helping orphan care projects and programs on the continent and actually giving resources to the grandmothers and the and the institutions, African institutions that were uh, had the responsibility for the youth, some of our more uh, Anglo organizations were always talking about adoptions, and uh, I could never really draw the distinction. <laughs> I mean, the connection um, as to why adoption was always kind of this lead thing with them. Uh, when it came to uh, protecting orphan and vulnerable children. Um, I, in some crazy way, I think it's tied to their their anti-abortion views and being evangelical and somehow or another, in some way, this all rolled up into this big sort of 
issue or uh, initiative around adoption uh, of children. That's sort of like the ultimate savior thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I I don't get it, but I somehow or another, that's kind of the way I think it kind of evolved. It is kind of a savior kind of thing. <laughs> that's what it is. And it and I think it's it's a personal thing. I see Leonard wants to say something before we wrap it up. Leonard? Oh, no. I thought you were going to call on me, and I don't go want ahead. to be touching and touching and touching and touching. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. First of all, uh, Paul, I am really impressed, Mr. Turner, with the knowledge and the history that you have of Africa. But I think Kenny touched on it, and Theta did as well. Um, and I'm not coming from a negative place, because I do mm-hmm. feel we all should go back to Africa. But there is so much corruption. And mm-hmm. why is it that all these other organ- these other countries know to go to Africa and take what they want? And, mm-hmm. and whereas it seems like they should be in charge. And I do hear a lot about corruption. Uh, my wife and I one time were thinking about moving there um, to Africa. And I can't remember what place. I feel like it was uh, Rwanda. Um, if you go there, you have to prove that you're going to start a business. You just mm-hmm. can't go to Africa and live. Um, there's a lot of rules. But with mm-hmm. your knowledge that you have, I would imagine you could build a team of individuals because I'm really impressed with all of the history that you know about all of those different uh, countries in Africa. But what do you think it is that the Africans don't come together themselves? Because like you mentioned, Europe's there, United States there, and the biggest one right now is China. And China's building, but they're not hiring Africans. They're only hiring mm-hmm. uh, Chinese individuals. I have heard that, yes. Mm-hmm. I have heard that. Yeah. Yes. No, thanks for that question. No, I have seen that as well. Well, you know, there are some... Um, what we call trade packs, uh, ECOWAS, uh, East African states that come together for security. Uh, ECOWAS is actually now talking about a, a common currency for all of uh, Western Africa. There is talk right now of banning, uh, not banning, but uh, having open borders. So you don't need passport to go from uh, country to country. Uh, the Africa Union is actually exploring that uh, right now. So there are some discussions about how you can integrate and it always talks about the United States of Africa but I think that's a, a far a far away place but at least they are talking about not having to need a visa um, to go from from country to country now a lot of this has to do also with two things the colonial legacy of controlling the flow of people in country and um, who comes in and who comes out all of that is just under new management since independence um, Secondly, there's just so much money to be made from uh, foreign exchange, from from direct foreign investment, whether that's people coming to the country. For example, anytime you fly out of uh, Kinshasa, you got to pay fifty dollars. You know, there's all this stuff you got to pay if you and it can, and Congo is one of the they, you know everything that you have to do to even visit the country makes it seem like they don't want you there in the first place. Right. You got to pay three hundred dollars. Right. I've heard uh, I heard the fee has come down, but it was three hundred dollars to get a visa that you got to mail to the the embassy in, uh, in Washington and hope you get it back in enough time before your flight. Then there's the you know now they even though you've had a COVID test in Kigali the day before. That same day you arrive in Congo, they want you to take another COVID test to let you in the country. And you say, well, here's my proof. I just took a test yesterday. But they say, that's Rwanda. This is Congo. You have to pay $45 to have another test. And if you don't like it, you can go back to Rwanda. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it's very unwelcoming. But once you get through all that, you actually get in. You get to meet the people and take the food and sit by the lake and have a beer and talk oh, to me. It's, it's, it's almost worth it. But no, you're, you're right. Uh, but there are some regional cooperation going on. Um, I noticed, for example, they had just built in the city of Goma where I was living uh, on Lake Kivu, where we actually had the um, volcanic eruption back in uh, May or June, wherever, whenever it was, um, Mount Nuragongo mm-hmm. began to seep lava out and we were afraid that the the lava was escaping underneath the lake which would cause a limnic eruption Ooh, underneath yeah. the lake which could 
produce gas that could suffocate the whole city of two million people. So the whole city was evacuated. Oh my God. <laughs> and night and some of those people were were actually allowed to go to Rwanda uh and, and waited out until given the okay to come back. But um but yeah, but there is uh I think the regional cooperation that's happening, the uh in fact the president of uh the Democratic Republic of the Congo is kind of his turn to kind of chair the African Union. Uh so he's kind of like president of the African Union at this point. And um so there is some uh regional cooperation going on, but uh no, definitely a lot more a lot more needs to happen in that wow. regard, I think. Right. As well. Hey, if I wanted to get some more knowledge uh, do you have a number that you can be reached? Uh, you can check our website, uh, uh, marciadturnerfoundation.org. And um, that's probably the best way to reach me at this point. Marcia okay. D. Turner D. Turner Foundation. Foundation. D. Turner? Yeah, D. Yeah. Okay. And Paul, I just told Kenny Hendricks we needed two hours for this conversation with you. We really needed two hours because we haven't touched even the surface yet. This We're just getting started. So, Paul, you do have to come back. You've got All to right. come back so that we can continue this dialogue about the continent of Africa. Sure, sure. And all its countries and states. So thank you so much for you. coming you on. Thanks for having me. And I'm glad it's been great. Thank you, you so much, Paul. Country until I get to Africa because that's my next trip. Very so, good. Highly <laughs> recommend you. it. Absolutely. I, I want to go. And the next time you come on, we're going to talk about the the return, the return, Ghana. Mm. Okay. okay. So that was August of 2019. So uh, we're going to talk about that. So thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And it's been our pleasure. And what an honor. I'm really glad that you did get a chance to come on. We're going to have you back. And Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. I'm going to send you and some you. information. Thank you very much. And is there anything you want to say to anybody before we shut it down? Kenny Hendricks, no, his okay. fingers are itching. <laughs> <laughs> Just thank you all for having me. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. It's been our pleasure. It's been our pleasure. All right. Learned pleasure. a lot. And Learned Paul, a lot. We'll thank you so much, soon. Paul. Folks, have a good evening. Take care. And don't forget to be with us on Sunday, December 12th for the second annual joyful Christmas carol celebration and again it will be fun it'll be festive it'll be snowmen it'll be Santa Claus good soulful music so come on back be with us on Sunday and be with us tomorrow for in the mix conversations with Colette and Corliss we'll talk to you then have a good night and be safe anybody need help getting to their car good night everybody (laughs) 